0: Welcome to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. We've interviewed the chapter authors of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook with the intention of bringing each chapter to life. Our goal is to make learning management not suck. Now let's learn a little bit about the interviewee for this chapter.
1: Hello, my name is Asara Grable, your host for today. With us in the studio, we have Linda Williams. Linda is a professor of business management and administration at Tidewater Community College, where she has been teaching since 2009, and prior to this has taught in the North Carolina Community College system, overall having been a professor for about 20 years. Linda has also been a consultant in the business industry, working on process control and improving various business operations. With Linda's expertise, we will be taking a closer look at organizational planning and controlling, which is the main focus of Chapter 17 of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook. Hi, Linda. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for being here. Hi. Nice to meet you. So just to start us off, I just want to know why you think organizational planning and controlling is important. So you can't
0: get... To any destination, whether it's in life or in business, if you don't have some kind of guardrails, organizational planning and control really lets everybody row the boat in the same direction. If I don't have a plan, I don't know how to measure success. If I have no control during the process, then I have no way of guaranteeing that I'm going to get the results that I need or that my customers want. When we think of planning and control, imagine going to a large sporting event or a concert or something at some big arena like a stadium and you arrive and there are no lines painted on the parking lot and you're going to have 50,000 people there. What do we think that's going to look like? So you've got people parked everywhere. You got them parked in sideways and they're backwards and they're long ways. And some of them are parallel and some of them are diagonal. And everybody will find somewhere to park eventually, but that's not really the most efficient way to load people into an arena and then to get them back out again, which is really your goal. So organizational or management planning control really works that kind same kind of way we're just saying we're we're going to paint some lines on the parking lot and we're going to give you a little bit of leeway because the parking spot is a little bit larger than your car but in general this is where we need you to go
1: fantastic so with all of the variables at the beginning of a plan lots of different moving parts that can determine how it starts What do you feel is the starting point of the planning process and when does that begin?
0: I think it starts when the organization is formed. Say you're an entrepreneur and we're talking about starting a small business. You've got some kind of goal and that's either to provide something that's needed in the marketplace. It may be a pure profit motivator, but the day the organization is born is the day that the planning begins because you started the company for a reason. It begins at the beginning and it never stops as the environment changes and competitors come in and out of your markets, your plans and your goals may shift, but ultimately you're still in existence for the
1: primary reason that you started out. I think it begins at the beginning. So can you give us a brief overview of the planning process as a whole and who is included in that process? When we
0: think about really planning, we think of everything in terms of goals and then actions. Planning is really kind of an intellectual activity. If I'm doing employee evaluations or I'm meeting with board members or I'm talking to suppliers or those are very visible things. You can see what I'm doing. But you know when I'm just sitting at my desk thinking about possibilities, sometimes that's what planning looks like. I've got to think about not only the plan, but what are the goals within that plan and then what action do I need to actually take? So I always think about it is You've got to have this awareness at the beginning, and that's awareness of where the company is, what resources you have, the environment that you work inside of. And that can be the financial, the legal, the technological. It's a competitive environment. And so it requires this awareness at the beginning of the environment in which the company or the organization operates. I think the next thing you have to look at is kind of outcome statements. And this is that idea that if I come up with these ideas or these plans, what are the outcomes gonna look like? We've got to do some kind of forecasting. And that part of the planning process really requires an organization to make some assumptions. And then those are things like, will we have the capital? that's required? Do we have the human capital on board to make this happen? Can we assume that the economy and our market demand is going to remain stable in the near future? Then really from there, you're going to start developing alternatives. It's rare that an organization succeeds with a singular goal. You really have to look and say, let me Look at some alternative ways that we could reach our ultimate goal or achieve our ultimate outcome. So really it's this idea that we begin with knowing where we are and deciding where we want to go. What alternatives do we have to achieve that goal and then begin to formulate supporting plans? And some organizations have those plans in place and sometimes you've got to create them. Those supporting plans are things like marketing plans, financial projections, human resource inventories. So you can come up with these large overarching goals and plans. And then it requires this set of supporting plans, contingency plans.
1: The chapter mentions two main types of planning, which are goal and domain planning. Would you mind explaining these more in depth?
0: I think that when we talk about Goal planning, we're looking at something that's very specific. In other words, we've got action statements. We've probably got some degree of specificity regarding them. Much more specific in reaching a specific goal, which could be product diversification. It's a very specific goal, and we're able to take a direct path. I believe that when we think about planning in a domain, we're talking about something that is a little bit broader and may really encompass more than a singular destination. So when I think of domain planning, I think of that as being much more a hybrid. We're looking at a general plan. We're going to go in a particular direction. As learning occurs, we reduce our uncertainty, we begin to sharpen our preferences for our outcome, and then we really define a direction.
1: So, with those two types of planning, there is a mention of a sort of crossover between those known as hybrid planning. When would that typically come into play? I
0: think that hybrid planning is for organizations that may be more organic and more innovative. When I look at innovative, very organic companies that may be in technology or in new consumer products, I think of them as benefiting to a greater degree to that idea of hybrid planning. In other words, they may not even know what it is they're developing or what it will look like, but they know they want to go into a general direction. So if we think about Amazon, they started as a bookseller. So if you wanted to buy books, you went to Amazon. And do I think that Jeff Bezos ever planned at the beginning of that to have an Alexa sitting on my desk, that can tell me where my stuff (laughs) from Amazon is. Probably not. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that idea of more of a hybrid, a more organic form of planning where he probably ended up someplace he never really expected to go. But there was planning and control along the way to get Alexa onto my desk.
1: So with the goals that can sort of push a planning process, what are the characteristics of a said goal that can help motivate performance?
0: So we talk in management a lot about stretch targets. And I don't know that that's specifically outlined in the content, but it's certainly something that is implied in this idea of setting a goal that is specific and has a degree of difficulty to it that is a stretch target. In other words, your employee is going to be pushed and stretched in order to achieve the goal. I do this with my students. I set the bar further out every time. The key to that is that the goal has to be attainable. Because if the goal's not attainable, then your employees kind of fall into this miasma of, of just like frustration that the target always moves, but I can't ever achieve it and I'm not making progress. So it's kind of this idea that I want them to be a challenge and I want them to be specific enough. So that when the goal is obtained, everybody can see that it's been reached. A lot of that goes back to the planning part. And that is, is when we start to set goals because that will give management at least acceptance on the part of their workforce of the goals and it allows employees to be more committed to meeting the goal
1: so goals give you a clear idea of what you need to achieve but there's also been mention of a negative side to goals could you talk a bit about that when we set
0: goals they need to be a balance between the amount of control or direction That the organization exerts and the amount of personal control that an individual has if i give a work team a goal i then need to give them the resources and the support to achieve that goal when i don't then we lose commitment and what will actually happen is you'll see employees set their own personal goals within that larger structure. For instance, if I set a goal that's unattainable, then what we end up seeing a lot of times is the employee will abandon that goal and begin to work on something that benefits them. Sometimes that's nothing more than appearing to continue to work towards the goal while retaining their job. That's really not their fault. That's human nature. They kind of go into this self-preservation mode. So there are a lot of negatives. If we set them too narrow, we squash any creativity and innovation that we may be getting from our workforce. In other words, it's my way or the highway.
1: So there's been a lot of talk of the word control. And the word controlling has often had negative connotations or has been used negatively. Can you explain controlling in the sense of management and provide some relatable examples?
0: I think control gets a bad rap. When people hear control, they think micromanagers, they think of loss of personal and workplace freedoms. Does that happen? Oh yeah. All the time. But in essence control is really this kind of monitoring and evaluating the effectiveness of what's going on within the organization and then taking action when it's needed so it doesn't need to necessarily be a bad thing how much control do you need Depends on how much change is going on in the environment and how complex your environment is. If you're working in a very stable environment, you can probably get away with establishing routine procedures for how the work gets done. When we have a very unstable environment and things are changing rapidly, then we need to back off and have a little bit less control. If we think about kind of a traditional control model. One of the ones that I've used with my industry clients over many years is a traditional Deming cycle where we establish a standard. We then monitor the process. We compare the actual results against what we thought we were going to get. We make that evaluation and then at that point we take action. I think the key to that Deming cycle is we kind of plan We study and then we act. So we let the process run and then we come in and take control of what isn't working. If you think about the success of the fast food industry worldwide, whether you're a fast food junkie or not, they are a really interesting example of how control can lead to organizational success. If you go to a given unnamed fast food franchise in Irving, Texas, and you go to the same franchise in Boise and another one in Atlanta and another one in um, Hartford, Connecticut, there's a consistency across all of those experiences. It may not be great, but it's consistent. And that requires a huge degree of control. And for that fast food industry, that's been their key to success. Because when somebody goes to a city or a town they're not familiar with, when they see that franchise, when they walk through the door, they already know what they're going to get. And that predictability is kind of the key to why that business model works so well. When you look at Highly innovative companies, you're going to see a lot less control. What we may actually see is chaos within guidelines and what we like to think of as kind of skunk work projects, where we have these kind of small, loosely structured teams who are tasked with the research and development of radically innovative products. So, in that Case, someplace like Google, Amazon, Facebook, TikTok, eBay, even, especially where they're technology driven, you you see these very loosely controlled product teams. And they may not really feel management's control until they really get to the end.
1: You mentioned the idea of micromanagement and When do you feel that controlling can cross over into micromanagement and how does that affect motivation?
0: So we presume that we've made good hiring decisions. So we take somebody's knowledge, skills, and abilities and their work experience and their life experience and their education. And we place them in a position. We give them goals or tasks to be accomplished. And we have to trust that person to do their job. Doesn't mean that they go unsupervised or unevaluated, but this idea that an employee says, you hired me for my knowledge and my experience. Now let me do my job. So micromanagement is really the grim reaper of employee morale. If you want to discourage and defeat and frustrate your workforce, then as a manager, take those subject matter experts that you hired and come in and tell them how to do their job. I have worked for micromanagers. It is a miserable experience. If I've hired someone and I've given them support, I've given them clear work instructions, I've been specific in how their performance is going to be evaluated, then I need to just let them do their
1: job. So, when a plan has actually been put into place, what do you feel is the most common conflict between employees and managers or members of the plan or project? And how do you combat those conflicts? Part of that, I think,
0: is balancing. The needs of the many against the needs of the few. Oftentimes, the person who is tasked with executing the plan was not involved in the plan. They have no information regarding what the outcome is, what the desired result is to be. They are literally in the dark and they receive this missive from Upper management, or whoever that says this is the direction we're going. Well, the person who's actually got to implement that was not involved in the planning process at all. And so I think that that causes a lot of discord. We like to think of ourselves as theory why managers. We say, yes, we believe all employees come to work ready to work, excited about working, and want to help the company achieve its goals and be financially successful. So If we come in with that belief, then we also have to trust that their inputs into the planning process is important. I've got a friend who works for an organization that has just gone through a pretty substantial restructure. None of the people who actually have to implement the plan were consulted when the restructure occurred everybody at the operations level is pretty much in agreement that it's not going to work but it's been rolled out they're dealing with the fallout from it and the people who made the plan are pretty insulated from the end user customer so we find that poorly designed poorly executed plans especially if you're in a service business, your employees catch the blowback from your inability to effectively plan. That leads to absenteeism, high turnover, low employee morale, poor customer service, and in the most extreme case, employee sabotage.
1: If you're in the role of a manager, how would you make sure that everyone's voice is heard and make sure everyone is involved in the planning process? I
0: mean, it's easier said than done. We see a lot of companies and organizations who have over the past 20 plus years gone to managing more by objective where we do get collaboration in the goal setting process. Everyone can kind of agree on defining the results. We have to give the employees the ability and the authority authority to somewhat guide their operations in other words to know what is going to work and how they can best meet that objective it requires a great degree of commitment by upper management you have to believe in your employees you have to believe in your team ultimately there's got to be some kind of gain sharing so when we meet this big goal, what do we do for the teams who made it happen? Do they get financial compensation? Do they get some kind of recognition or award? You've got to, to be able to say, we gave you a vision. You've helped us come up with the specific goals and the actions. We made it happen. There's something in it for you and it requires employees to take responsibility. Um, and you will find some people don't want the responsibility. I'd just rather you just tell me what to do. Don't have any idea. Don't really want to be like on the radar. So you have to find a way to get them to buy into this much more collaborative approach to achieving organizational goals and objectives. I think that sitting in your corner office sending out memos, telling people what they're going to achieve when you probably have little to no idea what it's actually like to do their job. Doesn't make you real popular when you walk through the employee cafeteria, so to speak.
1: Financial controls like budgets and non-budgetary control, like the Bounce scoreboard, are still a pretty important part of the controlling and planning process. Would you explain briefly how these roles play into controlling? What we
0: see is we see organizations kind of taking a different tact. We see many of, especially the larger, more successful organizations taking this balanced scorecard approach to strategic planning and management. And really what they're doing is they are kind of connecting the dots. So they're saying let's communicate what we're trying to accomplish and then align the day-to-day work that people are doing with these projects and products and services, and then come in and measure and monitor the progress we're making. So we really begin a balanced scorecard with learning and growth. We're looking at training and knowledge resources, in other words, How well are we capturing information? How effectively are employees using that information to convert that into some kind of competitive advantage? We move from there to look at our business processes and we want to investigate to see how well are our processes working? This is kind of the whole world of operations management. Are there gaps? Are there delays? Are there bottlenecks? Are there shortages? To make sure we've got our business processes buttoned up, so to speak. We have to look at the customer's perspective. And that's one of the other legs of a balanced scorecard. And this is really this idea of getting feedback from our customer. We're looking at what's our customer think of our product, what they think of the quality, what do they think of the price, what's their satisfaction with what we're currently offering. I think one of the things that makes a balanced scorecard unique is it wraps in as that last leg financial data, and that's everything from sales to expenditures. We're looking at the financial metrics and you you take those four legs together and they really encompass the entire vision and strategy. To use a balanced scorecard, you have to have an extremely engaged and active management team to go in and look at that. Because really what they're doing is, they're pooling together their information and data in order to get this really valuable insight into not only the financial track record, but the overall service and quality of the organization and the organization's products. It's become widely accepted and widely used tool. And what we really hope that one of the big benefits we'll get out of it is it will help identify the inefficiencies in our organization and move us away from relying on inefficient processes to be able to say, oh, okay, yes, this is the way we have always done it. We used to make fire with sticks and now we have a better way. And there's probably now a better way for us to meet our goals. It's an extremely effective tool and we see Everything from small entrepreneurial ventures to companies like Sony and Disney, you can actually go online and find a version of their balance scorecard where they're doing some introspection and some planning.
1: So quickly touching back on the idea of both employees and managers communicating, there is this new type of management known as involvement-oriented management. Can you explain exactly what that is and how it differs from typical controlling management?
0: I think Shakespeare said that there was nothing new under heaven and earth. And sometimes I think he's right. When we think about involvement oriented management, the first thing you've got to do is get your managers out of their offices. When we think about involving people in the process. We think about systems such as management by objective. And I think that when we look at control oriented management systems, that's what we've been talking about are these management systems that are very hierarchical, as opposed to an organic organization where the employee is directly involved in planning and controlling. Think about the difference between the conductor of an orchestra and a football coach. So the conductor of the orchestra stands at the front with his baton and he directs and controls the performance. He tells him when to go play faster, when to go slower, He's pointing at the guy with the little triangle and telling him it's his time to shine. Everything about that performance is controlled by the conductor at the front. So that's what we think about when we think of that really traditional control-based management style. When we go to this idea of involvement-oriented management, we're at a football coach. He's got the same goal everybody else does, win the game, but he's much more of a coach. He's not on the field calling the plays, but he's there to coach them and to support them and to make sure that they've got the resources that they need to make sure that the team is working as a unit. So we really think of that involved management style as much more, somebody's a teacher, they're a coach, they're a resource provider. They're not the conductor. And in organic organizations or organizations that are highly decentralized deal in very competitive environments, better way to encourage innovation and creativity. The guy in the orchestra can't go rope and start playing a different piece of music. He's got a conductor up there telling him what to do. But when we look at sports teams or even teaching in a classroom, that involvement of student and teacher and creating that open dialogue is very much like this kind of involvement management. I started teaching way back in the dark ages. It was very much instructor at the podium who lectured. Students took notes. They went home. They read them. They memorized them. They came back and they took the test. What I'm doing with you all is what teaching looks like. It looks very different. And I have four very bright young students who are producing this podcast. And when you talk about involvement management style, this is what it looks like. It looks like the coach, the teacher, the enabler, the supporter, much more than the director.
1: And so... To round us off and bring the idea of managerial planning out of the workplace, how can planning and controlling help college students should they choose to implement it into their lives?
0: Nobody plans to fail, but people fail to plan all the time. You got to have some kind of a plan. Does that mean you need a set of specific drop dead deadline goals that say by this age and by this year, I will have? a job doing X, making Y amount of money, and I'll be living in Phoenix, Arizona. Probably not. You need a general plan to have some idea of where you're going. It's really a matter of saying, if I wanna go from North Carolina to Las Vegas, and I'm gonna drive, I'm gonna do a lot better if I turn on my GPS in my car. Otherwise, there's no telling how long it's going to take me to get there. And so I think that for my students and for college students and for young adults, regardless of whether you're a student or not, I think that it's important to have a set of goals and then to find some type of a plan that will allow you to achieve those goals. Buying a lottery ticket is not a great retirement plan let's just put it that way it's just not a great retirement plan i think that one of the things that planning and goal setting does is it allows you to think of contingency plans so if things don't go exactly the way i thought they would do i have a contingency plan what's my plan b what's an alternative because there's more than one way to get to The ultimate goal, there's probably a fairly logical set of steps you need to take to get there, and not having at least some skeletal plan that will allow you to look at contingencies. Would you eventually get to where you wanted to be? Probably. Would you get there effectively and efficiently? Probably not.
1: Fantastic. All right, Linda. Well, Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us your knowledge about this topic. It's been really insightful and honestly, quite fun.
0: Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it and kudos to you and your teacher for thinking outside the box of what education looks like. You are truly to be commended for being those innovative, creative disruptors of what traditional learning looks like.
1: I think it's wonderful. I've been having a great time with it.
0: Well, I think it's awesome. And I really appreciate the opportunity to meet you all. I wish you nothing but the best. If there's ever anything I can do for any of you, your instructor has my contact information.
1: And thank you I so can. much. You've been listening to Deconstructing
0: Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. Be sure to check the show notes for resources related to this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.